hand drew 11 different ways of thinking about the workforce. And uh, they, they kind of went all the way from something that, that would be very much like what the Air Force and the other services currently have, all the way to one that we refer to as chaos or anarchy. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello again, Downlink listeners. This week is part two of an in-depth look at a novel and far-reaching proposal on just how the U.S. Space Force could structure its workforce and shape officer careers. We already assume mission success depends on the team, its cohesion, and its culture to drive a diverse variety of people and their skills, such as leadership, but also engineering, and the nose for the hunt on orbit or in software code. The Space Force is tasked with organizing, training, and equipping guardians, and like space technology, developing people for the future fight cannot be done on the cheap, and it takes consideration and time. So I recommend that you first listen to part one, which posted last month, and that's to understand why and how the Space Force is using an air-minded system that is a holdover from when space professionals were under the U.S. Air Force. This episode is about a space-minded system. From the beginning, the Space Force leadership knew Guardians needed a space-centric workforce development plan to fill space domain manning requirements that further the mission and military space careers. So about two years ago, the Space Force reached out to the RAND Corporation and asked its team to come up with a new plan, which RAND recently published. This episode is about that plan, what it would do, and whether it's being implemented. We're going to hear from two of the three RAND proposal authors, Larry Hanzer and Jennifer Lee, as well as two space power experts, Chris Stone and Brent Ziarnik. Here's our conversation. Hello, Larry, Jennifer, Chris, and Brent. Welcome back to the Downlink Podcast. Hello. Thanks very much. Glad to be back. We have a large group again. So before we pick up where we left off, let's do a brief round of introductions. Chris, as you are the regular on this podcast, you should start us off. Sure. Uh, my name is Christopher Stone. I am Senior Fellow for Space Deterrent Studies at the National Institute for Deterrent Studies in Washington, D.C. I am a former Special Assistant to a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy. And uh, also, uh, similar to Dr. Zarnick, I am also a, uh, a Reserve Component and former Active Duty Space Operations uh, Officer. And Brent? Hi, I'm Brent Zarnick. I'm a uh, an associate professor uh, teaching Space Force professional military education. Uh, used to be at uh, the Air Command and Staff College in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, starting in a month, it will be at Johns Hopkins University in Washington, D.C. Uh, also retired uh, Air Force Reserve Space Officer. Uh, you wanted us to plug a book. Well, I have a few books, but the one I'd really like to talk about now, since we're talking about the Space Force, is uh, I did my first shot at science fiction in a book called The Ross 248 Project, by, uh, edited by two really interesting engineers, Les Johnson and Ken Roy, uh, where my chapter talked about the history of the Space Force from 1947 
to about 2,500. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, I thought it was pretty interesting. And if you want to uh, hear what someone thinks about the far future space force, check it out. And is that on Amazon? It is indeed on Amazon from Bain Books. Excellent. And Jennifer, tell us about yourself and what you do at the Rand Corporation. Thanks, Laura. Uh, this is Jennifer Lee. I am a senior researcher at the Rand Corporation, where I work as a senior management scientist. And essentially, that means I bring a scientific lens to answering questions and solving problems regarding organizations, workforce development, leadership, strategy, culture, and change. And now, Larry, uh, you're also with the RAND Corporation. Tell us a little about yourself and what you do there. Sure. So my name is Larry Hanser. I am a, uh, RAND calls me a senior behavioral scientist. I am an industrial organizational psychologist by education. And I've worked at RAND for coming on 34 and a half years. And during that period of time, I have worked on personnel issues, uh, military personnel issues, civilian personnel issues, uh, and so on. Now on to our discussion. Now, Larry, the U.S. Space Force asked the RAND Corporation, that's you and Jennifer, and Chaitra Hardison, to design an alternative workforce framework. Could you briefly describe what a workforce framework is and what are the key challenges the Space Force is hoping to solve? Yeah. Uh, first, I should say it's Chaitra Hardison, our, our uh, third author on this. And uh, I, I wanted to clean up a little bit of, because you had asked last time, what we were trying to, you know, what we were trying to have happen and what and what we were doing. Uh, but first, let me talk about framework. The interesting thing is actually if you if you Google around and look for workforce framework, there really isn't quite such a such a thing. That is, it's not it's not a common usage term. We thought of it in the context of how you would organize the workforce, what kind of organizing principles would you have in the workforce? And it was related to, essentially, uh, General Raymond was interested in doing away with career fields in the Space Force. So we can think of the Air Force and other military services career fields as a framework for how they organize their personnel. And we were looking for a different way to organize personnel. Um, the the three things that we were trying to, or the three goals or primary goals that we had were, first of all, uh, perhaps most importantly, right, mission success. So the Space Force needs technical expertise. They it's It's a highly technical force. The second thing that they need is sustainability. And this is um, perhaps difficult for them in the sense that they're a new service, they have some small occupational areas that people work in. So we, we wanted to design a framework where people could find a home in the Space Force, you know, could see that there was actually a career ahead of them. And finally, we wanted to create a Space Force that had a positive culture where there were not some of the issues related to tribes or stovepipes that we, that we see in some of the other services. And at the 
moment, under the current construct, which is inherited from the Air Force, there are also really two tribes, right? I mean, the space operators and everybody else. And haven't you done away with that structure for space-related officers? And why did you do that? And, and what did you put in its place? Well, uh, actually, one of the things that became pretty clear in the first doctrinal statement from the Space Force was it, it seemed to us that the Space Force was headed down kind of the same path as the Air Force in terms of having operators and then sort of everybody else. And we felt that this might have some negative consequences for collaboration and, uh, and a feeling of unity in a relatively small service. So one of the things that we did is, is we said, and actually now that, now that I recall this, one of the things that, that came to us initially, the, the language we heard from folks in the Space Force was they wanted something similar to every Marine a rifleman, the idea that everybody would be created the same. And initially, it, it sort of came out from the Space Force, the idea of everybody being an operator in the Space Force. And it is such a highly technical service that it's just not possible for an individual to be an expert in everything that they need to do. But we realized that there was a need for individuals to know more than one topical area, to know more than one warfighting domain, or to be skilled in more than one occupational area. And, and we ended up blending some of those things. If you, if you don't mind, Laura, if I could ask a quick question of Larry. Um, when you said General Raymond wanted to get rid of career fields in the Space Force, but, but then the way you describe it as more of, uh, because even the Marine Corps has career fields, even though they're all you know framed around the rifleman thing, um, was he really wanting to get rid of career fields or was he looking more into what you're describing. And the reason why I ask is because once you, once you answer, I have a follow-up that's related to a historical parallel that came to mind when you were describing it. And that's the late 40s Strategic Air Command when LeMay took over. So I'll let you answer first. And then a historical thing just popped in my head while you were talking. Well, we, we did get uh, quite a bit of pressure, actually, in our first, actually in several months worth of conversations with the Space Force people basically saying, why can't we do away with career fields? Why, we, we need to do away with career fields. And we sat down, I think I may have mentioned this last time, our colleague Chaitra hand-drew 11 different ways of thinking about the workforce. And uh, they, they kind of went all the way from something that that would be very much like what the Air Force and the other services currently have, all the way to one that we refer to as chaos or anarchy, which was this notion that anybody could put in for anything and maybe get the job in anything that they might desire. And uh, the, it's just too technical of a service for that to happen. Go ahead, Chris. Okay. Well, yeah, the reason why I was asking is because this kind of reminded me of in the late 40s, when Strategic Air Command was created in like 1946, I believe it was, even before the service separated, it was a pretty small force of leftover bombers and, and personnel. And so because of that small force, 
Um, I think it was General Kenny at the time basically tried to make pilots, maintenance officers, personnel officers, personnel officers also have other aircrew positions and everything was layered on top of each other. And whenever LeMay came in to try to figure out how ready they were to execute a national level priority mission that they were given by Truman and, and follow on presidents that because as you were kind of alluding to that, not everybody can be, you know, a jack of all trades, you, you'll end up being a master of none. And so he kind of created the career field, you know, mindset is to say, okay, you focus on this. We may broaden you later into maintenance and stuff, but you're still priority career field is, is pilot or navigator or whatever it is. And so as a result, that seemed to add more efficiencies. And while I understand the everybody, you know, be an operator, that certainly makes sense because even in the Air Force before the Space Force, we were doing things called operational exchanges with scientists and engineers and acquisition officers who would go do a tour in a space mission squadron or even a missile unit when we were combined that was that way. So I just thought that was interesting when, when you'd mentioned that. And I was just curious if any of that historical stuff either matters or had, had actually come up in conversation or was it not even brought up? Well, none of us are historians on, on this project. <laughs> it's although, you know, I'm the oldest on the project and been around military personnel the longest. Uh, but I have to say not not back to that period of time. Um, but, it, you know, it, it's interesting to think about, you know, this idea of everybody a Marine, everybody, every Marine a rifleman. Um, one of the things that the Marine Corps does, which you may know, is they have a, uh, an experience, I think it's called, um, oh, I've forgotten the name of it, it's some kind of camp that's 8, 10, 12 weeks long at the beginning where every single Marine goes through that Officer basic course. Uh, that's it. Officer yep. basic, right? And and they don't actually get slotted into a career field until somewhere along the somewhere along that line. But as you know, as you note, they don't all end up being riflemen. Uh, and actually, you know, if you look at the at the military academies and even at the ROTC places, there are experiences that are provided to create some kind of unity among the among the individuals in the services. And we wanted to, we sort of took the idea of every Marine, a rifleman, and the uh, the officer basic camp as a way to begin everybody in the Space Force feeling like they're all part of the, uh, they're all part of the same Space Force. But, you know, I, and I'll, I'll say one other thing about, if you think about aircraft maintenance, for example, how many different kinds of maintainers exist on a on an airframe right you've got people fixing sheet metal you've got people fixing the electronics you've got engine mechanics and so on and i i don't think i would say the space force is less technical than that in terms of uh managing satellites managing communications figuring out what the heck other competitors are doing in space buying the things and getting them launched Jennifer? You know, Jennifer? Um, I, I just wanted to jump in and clarify something um, for your listeners. Um, Larry mentioned that General Raymond and others had brought up this idea of every Marine rifleman 
And there was also the idea of getting rid of career fields. And those two things weren't necessarily related. Um, I, I do want to say at that time, there was a very vibrant idea sharing space and period of time going on. And these things certainly did come up. And it, just to be real, not everyone was on board with one or both of these ideas, but certainly we took them into account. Um, we heard from many others um, in, in top leadership as well. And as many people as we spoke with, that's how many different opinions we took in. So in that vein, can, you know, either you, Jennifer, or Larry, can you break down the sort of differentiations? I mean, you've got warfighting mission areas and occupational competencies. And because if it's really implemented, mm-hmm. you know, it, it really sort of expands what Space Force officers are going to be asked to understand and asked to be able to to, to do, right? So... Essentially, a a way to think about it is if you start by thinking about the way the Air Force uh, categorizes people by AFSC, which is Air Force Specialty Code, which is essentially um, a, a number and a letter that stands for your career field. In the Air Force, one would have one's career field, and that would in most cases, be the same across one's career. So you wouldn't change. Um, And essentially, something like this was, um, was put out by Space Force when they came out with their capstone document. Um, They laid out seven space power disciplines. And those seven disciplines were orbital warfare, space electromagnetic warfare, space battle management, and space access and sustainment. Those were the first four. And then the next three were military intelligence, engineering and acquisition, and cyber operations. So in a way, if one continues with these seven space power disciplines and does so in the same way that the Air Force had approached AFSCs, you can kind of see in terms of a framework or a structure, it's actually quite similar to what is happening in the Air Force. And having heard a lot about how much Space Force wanted to avoid some of the downsides of what was observed in the Air Force in terms of, you know, stove piping and, 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 um, you know, just the fighter pilot mafia. Yes. Just, you know, the idea of, of tribes forming and so forth. um, it, It became clear that, you know, to do the same thing is likely to get you the same thing you already saw. So essentially what we did was, um, was we thought about what was represented in the space power disciplines and, and sort of noticed that the first four essentially um, corresponded to space 
operators. So these would be four different types of space operators, orbital warfare, space electromagnetic warfare, uh, space battle management and space access and sustainment. And then the next three were sort of similar to Air Force specialties, military intelligence, engineering acquisition. They had combined engineering and acquisition, which were two in the Air Force into one, and then cyber operations. So uh, essentially what we did was we, we noticed that with this kind of separation, uh, not only would they be getting um, the same kind of stovepiping that they had before, but with an organization, a service as small as they were, this would have sort of downstream consequences in terms of developing people, in terms of people being having any kind of um, you know mobility and would you know would people in these different space power disciplines have the same kinds of opportunities as one another you know thinking about those things and many other considerations essentially what uh, we recommended was to think about the framework instead of being seven columns or seven silos as a matrix so just to explain that um the matrix basically is like a table where you'll have something on the vertical and something on the horizontal. And so, um, and then the lines cross. And so the way that we uh, set up our framework was to take the war fighting mission areas, which are orbital warfare, uh, space electromagnetic warfare, space battle management, and space access and sustainment, and consider those four warfighting mission areas that any guardian, um, well, we were dealing with officers, so any guardian who is an officer can work in any of those. Um, And then they also have their occupational competency. And so those would be acquisition management, engineering, uh, cyber, intelligence, and the general category of space operations. And you could take any of these operational competencies and train someone to have expertise in any one or more, which Larry will get to later, um, any one to begin with of these warfighting mission areas. I hope that was <laughs> I hope that was somewhat understandable. To clarify a bit more, I mean from from what I understand from when, you know, I read uh your proposal is that out of the different warfighting missionaries and there are four and out of the occupational competencies which are about 5 mm-hmm. that if you're an incoming officer you're going to have to do, you know, learn one warfighting mission area and you're going to have to learn one occupational competency. So, you know, Jennifer, yes. I, I want to give this back to you again um, and, and, and continue, you know, educating the audience who can't see the organizational mm-hmm. chart with their own eyes, you know, an understanding mm-hmm. of how your framework would work. Uh, you know, what's the flow? So like if you are an officer receiving his or her first commission, to the end of 
that initial term of service, you know, what what would be a possibility? What would be a pot? You know, what are the possible you know combinations? Like one or two of them. What would they? What could they be? So um, you're right, Laura. So essentially, there are 20 possible combinations, but I'll just give you a couple of examples. Um, so upon entering, an officer could be trained in, for example, um, space operations and space electromagnetic warfare. Another example would be that someone could come in and be trained in cyber operations and space battle management. And so um, in each of those, the first thing, for example, cyber operations is their occupational competency and space battle management is essentially the realm in which they apply that competency. And um, for the example that I just said, that would be a cyber, someone who acquires cyber skills working in the warfighting mission area of space battle management. Can I jump in for a second? Sure. So a couple of things. One is that part of what preceded this kind of thinking was back before or right at the beginning of the initiation of the Space Force, uh, Major General Crozier was one of the folks putting it all together. And I remember him saying one time that when he was on the, the floor where the satellite operators were, that, they were, that there was an intel person sitting next to the operator. And he said, you know, this intel person and the operator are doing kind of similar things. And in his mind, he, he suggested, he said, well, maybe, the, maybe it could be one career field, right? That you would be both intel and satellite operator. And, you know, so this, so this notion that, that somebody could actually be multiple skilled or that the, or that the skill set for an operator might be broader than just operating the satellite. But the other thing that I wanted to, actually, I have two things I wanted to say. The other thing I wanted to say is that in our framework, we, we realize that training is expensive. It's, it's expensive in a couple of ways. One is that you actually have to spend the time training somebody. But the other is that when somebody is in training, somebody else has to be actually doing the, doing the work. So our notion was that an individual officer in their first career would have only uh, one of the, the warfare disciplines and one of the occupational disciplines. So that somebody might, you know, as Jennifer, the combinations that she said, and that it would be only after they decided that they would stay longer than the four or five years and essentially make more of a commitment to the Space Force, would they actually receive additional training? The other thing that hasn't been said yet, and uh, I think it's important for the listeners to have a little better idea of um, at least these warfare areas, and maybe Chris and Brent might be able to speak to them a little better than I can, but orbital warfare, you can, when we say orbital warfare, it's basically moving, maneuvering stuff around up, up in the orbit in order to uh, protect or defend what you've got, and perhaps uh, sometime in the future, maybe uh, attack other or interfere with others. Space electromagnetic warfare is 
in the realm of, um, let's just say, it, it, it's referred to as spectrum awareness. So here we're talking about electronics and, you know, you can think of it in terms of jamming signals and things like that. Space battle management, I think of as sort of the higher, higher level, level kind of thing where uh, you might think of somebody who, and I don't know if this is the way the Space Force thinks about it, it's just what it, uh, and as I said, maybe Chris or, or Brent will know better, but I think of it as kind of a higher order way of thinking about it. That is abstracting a little bit from the orbital and electromagnetic warfare parts of it. And finally, space access and sustainment has essentially to do with making sure that we can get stuff up there, that we can keep it up there, and that we can communicate it with communicate with it while it's up there. So that's that's uh, Larry's idea of what these <laughs> as a personnel guy uh, of of what these things are. Also within this construct, I mean, isn't one of the impacts that you're hoping for, or actually two impacts, is workforce availability, and then culturally, there's there's also a hope for effect. I mean, there's two two big things that you're that you're looking for because it's such a small force that you you want to have you know enough people to fill the position so that people can go off and you know study for these skills, right? I mean, this is a cross skilling challenge. And then there's also the cultural challenge of, of, of unifying the Space Force into this feeling that they really are all part of one, you know, Space Force as opposed to being, you know, I'm part of the fighter pilot mafia or I'm part of the bomber mafia or I'm part of the missileers, right? I mean, those are really serious stovepipes within the Air Force that if I read your, your proposal correctly... You, the Space Force really wants to do away with that and really, you know, come up with sort of a, a baseline where there's, you know, everybody has operations as well as a, a, a professional competency. Is that what you're going for? I mean, could, could you expand on that a bit? Well, um, sure. But one, one way to think about this is that in a way, these occupational competencies that we have here are really all significant elements of the mission. Uh, not to say that, um, let, me, let me use terms that I think are used by others, right? So you have an operational force and then you have a generating force. And the generating force usually consists of like the trainers and the personnel people and uh, maybe the medical people and so on. And then you have the operational force, which is kind of the pointy end of the stick. I've heard the the uh, the logistics and uh, acquisition, the acquisition management folks and the engineers talk about their interest is in what they what they've referred to as future operations, whereas the satellite operators, uh, the military intel people, uh, the uh, the cyber folks, and so on are current operations. So one of the one of the things that our framework does is basically make uh, make it such that if somebody is unavailable, that there is somebody else in the workforce that can step into that role because they are multi-skilled, and and that that increases the availability of uh of, to to fill positions. We hope. Um, that by by creating a framework that creates more unity and more of a positive culture 
and a way for an individual to see a way clear to a full career, that that will also have an effect on, on the availability of personnel. So there's the proposal. And now I'd like to cede the floor to Brent, who has a few questions, starting, I believe, with implementation. Well, uh, thanks. Um, but honestly, it took me a while to remember, but I really do think that the, the power of this particular paper, and thank you for writing it, is the actual framework itself and that you've thought about everything sort of holistically because it, it took me a while to remember exactly, but uh, me and a couple of other folks, uh, some majors were trying to work through how we could have some sort of basic school kind of analogy, you know, an analogy, you know, entry program for, for new officers and enlisted folk in the space force. And we started talking to people that were uh, doing the space analogs that are around uh, we talked to people in uh, Biosphere 2, uh, you know, out in Arizona. Uh, I was talking with a guy that was uh, really big at underwater habitats to try to put all Space Force people in a foreign environment much more cheaply than flying them into space. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of good ideas out there. And if the Space Force ever wants a, uh, uh, you know, a station out near uh, Naval Air Station Key West, you know, come talk to me. I've got some uh, con plans for you. But, um, you know, I could never explain it to senior officers as well as what the as what your framework sort of says. So I think uh, your framework will be very useful if it's implemented, which I hope it is. And I hope you all press for it and I'll try to press for it to try to figure in where everyone's individual sort of interesting ideas might be able to come together and be pieces of a of a of a larger whole because it's, it is very important. But, uh, I just remember that as like, man, if I could have explained the way you did to the senior officers, I might've gotten farther. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so that's the real question is, uh, do you have the ear of the senior leadership of the space force on this or at, you know, uh, I would imagine space training and readiness command, which, you know, the field command responsible for, uh, for training, you know, accessions and, and stuff like that. Do you, is, is anyone talking to you? Well, you know how Rand is. We have, uh, there are a bunch of people working on Space Force related things. And so I know, for example, that our colleague on this report, Chaitra, is working uh, with others on a talent management project for the Space Force. Uh, which is, you know, basically another sponsored project from the uh, from the talent management office and so on in the space force. Uh, and Chaitra is well steeped in in what we've done here. Uh, we we've never really thought of us like three people with a leader and two other people. It's really been a, uh, you know, you could have you could have moved people's names around on the report and it, it really wouldn't have made a difference. So she's, uh, I'm sure that that uh, this is going to get through that way. I can tell you, I think I mentioned this last time, that I know that the Air Force, the the um, development folks at AETC have been looking at this report and are thinking of ways that this might play in the Air Force. I, You know, I, I kind of, you, you may remember when uh, the Air Force put together personnel and services into a single career field, right? If you if you were if you paid attention to that, that's kind of in my mind 
not exactly the optimum combination of things to say that we're going to have a career field that's personnel and services where the services people run like the housing and you know and stuff like that right so maybe so one of the things that we've done in our that we've said in our report in in terms of implementation because you had started to think about or ask about implementation we know that you can't just throw this thing down and say okay we're you know everything is happening at once here so we have a i don't recall the details of the implementation as we've laid it out in our report but I know that we've thought of it in terms of a staged implementation. And one of the things that really, you know, as Jennifer noted, there are 20 different combinations of warfare competencies and the occupational competencies. Probably the Space Force doesn't need all of those possible combinations in individuals or may not need all of those combinations in individuals. So one of the first things that we've that we've said is, uh, and it's not you know it's not a really big service, so shouldn't take too that that too long or be too hard to do to figure out what they need, you know what are if if they look at a position, what kind of person would they like to have in that position in terms of skills, and uh, that's really the first thing that you would need to do, right? Oh, I just wanted to add add a little something onto. Um... Larry's response to Brent's question. Uh, part of Brent's question was, do we have the ear? And the, I think the answer to that is sort of yes and no. Um, we actually started this work in um, in FY20. And so that was pretty early on um, after Space Force was uh, put into place. And through the time of doing this project, you know, as I mentioned last week, um, we have been able to um, communicate with those associated with our project. And we have seen bits and pieces of this, these ideas sort of show up from time to time in their talking points, in their briefings and so forth. But, you know, part of the real answer is there is so much going on and there are so many decisions having to be made by those in the positions to make those decisions that even though there's some uptake, I think there has not yet been the opportunity to get one's full attention onto this in a way that would really lead to this, like a more thorough uptake. And so one of the things that we really appreciate about um, being able to be on your podcast, Laura, is that we get to bring this to a broader audience. And we certainly hope that those who are listening um, will, uh, if they think this is interesting, um, help to bring this to the attention of those who can percolate it upwards as well so that they are getting it from different you know, different sources. So hopefully eventually you'll have like the CSO say, hey, you know, don't we have some sort of proposal from Rand out there to, to implement a, a new way of, of making our guardians more flexible? I mean, it, that's basically what, you know, 
I'd say we're waiting for, right? I mean, if the CSO says this, then it, you know, somebody downstream is going to say, Hey, yeah, that's a good thing to do. We did pay for that report. We did pay for all that time. Maybe we should think about implementing it. I mean, I, I totally get what you're, what you're saying, seen it, lived it myself, Chris. Well, and in, if I can well, just real quick, sorry, an, an advantage that you have is that there is a track record and there is some history for a lot of the uh, tactical aspects of your plan that people can fall back on, not simply for additional information, but to say, look, this is not outside the realm of, you know, possibility or the realm of history. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, officers and even a lot of enlisted people will see parts of what you're proposing in their own careers. And it's like, oh, I understand because I did something like that in 2015 uh, and so on and so forth. So I really do think if it's pressed, this framework could be very, very useful and reasonably well adopted by the Space Force. Really glad Chris. to hear that, Brent. Yeah, so there's one thing that also popped in my mind that, that kind of gets back to a discussion that even Brent and I had several years ago, um, I think when we were either majors or captains, but that was regarding the comment about technical, everything being a very technical thing. And one of the thoughts that we had discussed was the fact that while it's good to have technical experts and you want to have technical experts, um, there has been a push to prevent liberal arts majors who study, you know, people, psychology, things of that sort um, that could you know, merge with some of the technical and, and become great strategic thinkers for the service outside the widgets and, and the beeps and squeaks, as people like to say about us. And so when you were talking with the Space Force, are, are they pretty much thinking strictly, you know, officers and potentially enlisted that are strictly engineers and scientists? Or are they open to having guys like myself who... While I have a technical mind, I did not have technical degrees, and I was able to become a strategist to kind of help see the bigger picture, like Larry was talking about. Uh, I can't, I can't point to any specific conversation. Uh, I don't recall any specific conversation like that. However, I think it 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 should be obvious that if you are if if you have to think about what's going on in in three dimensional space far, far away relative to others in three-dimensional space and have some knowledge of orbital mechanics while you're doing it, it, it strikes me that, yes, you need a technical mind, but you need somebody who is a critical thinker, for example. And, and I think some of the humanities and so on are where individuals uh, can pick up critical, critical thinking skills, not just in, in technical areas. Yeah, I, I think I, I'm sorry, real quick. I think Brent, maybe you know the quote off top, but there was a John Paul Jones quote. Since you're a big Navy history guy, that was talking about this even back in the day when he was around about you know yes, being in the Navy is is technical compared to the Army um, even back then with sail, but you don't necessarily want to have everybody be the same in that respect, or you'll miss a lot of the. I'm paraphrasing that the, the yeah. actual bigger picture of why wars happen and why we have stuff up there in the first place. No, I, I can't recall it, but it was a huge deal in the, uh, the engineering, you know, the engineer versus line officer debate in the late 1800s. But uh, I'd have to get 
smarted back up on that, which uh, I am <laughs> I'm a little bit behind the times on that one, a little bit uh, rusty, or maybe some barnacles if you want to keep with the Navy stuff. <laughs> but that's is, that's really the role uh, of uh, professional, uh, one of the roles of professional military education, right? And we know that the Space Force is, uh, you know, starting up their own their own professional military education program uh, or programs. So I would I would hope that, you know, basically, if you think about if you think about military training, if you think about enlisted folks, basically, they get some kind of technical skill training. That's the main thing that happens before, you know, before they start. Officers get some touch of leadership in ROTC or in the academy and so on, and then essentially go off to get their technical training. And then we rely on the services, rely on professional military education to create the tacticians and strategists and so on. So that's, Brent, that's on you, I think. It's all your fault, Brent. Yeah, well, you know, no pressure, right? (laughs) Oh, uh, we're trying. Um, as soon as you get to be the major or lieutenant colonel level, uh, you know, we, we sort of miss out a little bit on the on the younger folks. But uh, th- we are trying to push professional military education down to the captains and the lieutenant level and the cadet level, hopefully. Uh, there's some good people at the academy working on that and in ROTC. But uh, you're right, and we do have to work on it. So I just wanted to respond to what Chris said um, because I – I think that in the comments following, maybe not the full spirit of Chris's question may have been addressed. And it, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but it sounds like you're also asking about a certain kind of diversity of thought. That if you're bringing in uh, people who are technically inclined and not bringing in people who you know, come from other backgrounds or may have other ways of thinking, are you missing something? So did I, did I understand that as part of your question as well? Yeah, partly, I guess the part I was looking at is from experience where um, as someone who's been able to do the operational level of war plans and, and then, you know, at the strategic level is a lot of the, the people at the, at the operational tactical unit level, that are used to operating the satellite vehicles or the ground radars or whatever, some of them become very specialized, you know, weapons officers, things of that sort. And it's very difficult when you spend a majority of your time, 15 plus years thinking about widgets and tactics and maneuver, and you can't get your head out of that and into the bigger objectives and ends and strategic level stuff. And so part of the reason why I ask is because when, whenever Larry was mentioning, the bigger picture. Um, I was thinking about, you know, an old, an older model, again, historical model, um, which is the Prussian model where they would take, you know, army folks that were fairly young in the service, but had served in a, a unit or two in the line and, but had, you know, potential for strategic thinking. And rather than constantly file, you know, filing their way up this, this diamond of career path, that we we talked about, I think, a little last time mm-hmm. that the Air Force had been feeding into us when we were cadets and lieutenants, it may not be the best path for that person. You may have someone who might have really good skills in strategic thinking that may not be as good of a tactician, and there may be people who might be better off staying with the tactical 
you know, operating the vehicle stuff and they're, and they're, you know, a lot better at innovating there. So diversity of thought. Yeah. In that respect, but also in the fact of, of just, you know, making sure we have somebody steering the ship as a service beyond what's the next program, you know, what's the next widget to replace the current set of widgets and things as important as widgets are, you know, it's, there's a reason why we have the service and people, Sometimes when they when they're doing their day to day, they kind of forget the bigger picture. So that's what I was kind of thinking about: is how do you shape yeah. people to be the senior leaders? Well, one of the things that we noted as we were speaking with those who are in senior leader positions in in the Air Force um, and now in the Space Force is, you know, anecdotally we hear a lot of. Um, you know, a good number of general officers say things like, well, I was unusual because I was focused on this area. And then I went off and I did a stint in this other area. And because of that, then they describe subsequent, you know, growth opportunities and so forth. And um, in the past, those would be less common cases. And under the framework that we're proposing, those kinds of cases can become more common. Um, so, and and this does get, I think, a little bit to your point, Chris, about more big picture thinking um, in a career field focused or specialty focused um, career path, one is encouraged to just get very, very straight and deep in one area. And by sort of combining occupational competencies with different warfighting mission areas, um, we give people the opportunity to go deep or to go broad so they can have a competency in one area and then become expert in applying that in more than one warfighting mission area if they choose, and if the Space Force deems that beneficial to the service itself. Um, Let with me the jump 20- in real quick. Jennifer, g- give, give, give the audience an example of that, because that's something that happens basically after mm-hmm. the first term, but when, when a, an officer uh, signs up for a second term, right, you know, from, from what majors onward. So that there is mm-hmm. at least one war fighting um, and one uh, professional competency, right? What happens in the second mm-hmm. in the second term? So if they stay beyond um, and they are on for a second term, um, they can. Let's suppose they are initially trained in uh, space operations for electromagnetic warfare. So that, that's their original combination. They could then expand, if they wanted to, um, they could expand their warfighting scope by then going on to receive training in, for example, space battle management. Um, or another option would be they could expand their occupational scope by receiving training in cyber operations. So from where they are at that time, if they wish to, and if it's beneficial to the service, they can pivot a little bit 
which lets them broaden. This sounds a lot like the army where they usually start you in a combat arm, as they call it, like uh, tanks or infantry or com- or uh, field artillery. And then there's space guys, or if you want to go into intel or whatever, then you change your functional area accordingly. Um, I've had several FA-40s, as the space guys are called in the Army, come out of that route, or even signals, and then they become a space person, and they stay there for the rest of their time. But for their first three, four years in the service, they're, you know, shooting, crawling, <laughs> firing <laughs> artillery, hurting themselves. Humping 50, 50 yeah, pounds. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah. There's, there's another element that, that I, I know both Laura, Chris, and Brent all have personal experience in, and that is there are many different jobs, many different, uh, let me put it as positions, right? So that you can be, you can have a certain kind of technical skill and uh, be put into a, you know, we're, when we're, we're thinking about, I think maybe even a senior captain, but certainly at the major level, you're looking at somebody who can be in a variety of staff positions and uh, can even move outside of the Space Force into like the NRO or, uh, you know, other kinds of joint uh, or agency positions. And, you know, so it's it's so development doesn't just occur through training. It occurs through experience. And, and you can think about the different experiences somebody gets in different positions. And I think that will be critical in terms of developing the kinds of people that Chris has been asking about. Okay, everybody, we have run out of time. So I want to thank you all so much for coming on the Downlink podcast. And I hope to have you all again on soon, especially when we hear about this being implemented. Sounds good. Thanks, Laura. Thanks very much. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for the invitation. And it's great to meet you other guys and uh, hear your thoughts. Thanks for everything. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.